Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to be able to worship you this Christmas day, that you have given us another day, you've given us life in this day, you've given us the breath that we breathe this morning, and so Lord, you've also given us the eyes with which we will look at your word right now, and you've given us the ears with which we'll listen to your word being proclaimed and explained. So Lord, we pray that we may receive these gracious gifts, the life that we have, the bodies that we have, and we may use them for your glory, that we may seek to hear the voice of the living God this morning as you proclaim yourself through your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this Christmas morning, I thought it would be good for us to focus upon uh, a Christmas message uh, from the Word, but I've chosen a text that you may not see as an obvious one about Christmas. John chapter 1 is not the place that most people would turn to when they want to hear about Jesus in the manger. Instead, they would turn to one of the other Gospels that does describe the birth of Jesus Christ in great detail. But the verse that I want to focus on this morning is indeed a Christmas text when you look at it more closely. And that is John chapter 1, verse 14. I encourage you, if you've got a Bible there, please open it up to John chapter 1, verse 14, which is page 1049, if you've got a black church Bible. John chapter 1, verse 14, where we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Seems a bit cryptic at first, because who is the word after all? Well, the Bible in this passage tells us who the word is. The word is God himself. If you look back with me to verse 1 of John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is the word? The word is God himself. And so in verse 14, when it said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, it says, in effect, God became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. But what does it mean that he became flesh? Well, it's referring to the fact that he became human, that God himself took on a human body. So in one sense, this is describing what we always remember at Christmas, that God himself came and was there, the baby in the manger, on that first Christmas day. But it's interesting how it describes the life of Christ, of him coming and taking on flesh in this text. It says there in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And if you know any uh, of the New Testament Greek that is behind this English translation, you know that this is a very common word that's used there and translated as dwelling. It's a word that is for tents, for tenting, for camping in one sense, in a tent. And so some translations even say that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us to give the emphasis upon the fact that this is tenting. And it's actually helping you to understand that this is a reference to what happened in the Old Testament where God tented amongst his people, particularly during their time in the wilderness. When the Israelites were redeemed from Egypt, they went and they spent 40 years going around in the desert, and God gave very specific instructions about where his place was to be amongst the Israelite community. And that was in a tent that was made very specifically for him, and we call that the tabernacle, that he tabernacled amongst his people. And so 
the reason the word is given there in verse 14 is in one sense to remind us of the fact that God has always tented amongst his people and that Jesus is just following on with the tradition of how God dwelt in a tent, his glory dwelt in a tent in the Old Testament. But I think it's an important use of the word tent there as well for other reasons. And I think it's one of the reasons why tent is used there is to show the indignity that it was for God to come and take on human flesh. Because I think most of us would recognise that living in tents is not dignified living. I hate camping. I haven't been camping for a very long time. Um, I, I have been to church camps, but they are in structures that are not made of canvas. It has been a long time since I actually stayed in a tent. Um, it would be going back to when I was in Boys Brigade in my teenage years that I lived in a tent, and I was not attracted to the proposition once I'd done it a few times. We recognise that camping is undignified living. And even the Bible recognises that camping is undignified living in the way that Abraham is described as one who had to live in tents because he was still looking forward to the kingdom that would come. He was one who dwelt in tents. He lived in a indignified, undignified way here on this earth. But he was looking forward to a heavenly home. And even David, King David, when... He is settled in Jerusalem and he has this marvellous palace and he looks at where God is dwelling, where God is said to dwell, where the ark of God is dwelling in Jerusalem and he says, I'm living in this palace but then God is dwelling in a tent. So I should really make a nice house for God. Uh, And it's a noble aspiration but it is not granted to David to actually make a palace, a, a temple for God to dwell in. It's given to his son. So the Bible recognises that tent living is not the best, that to live in a tent is undignified. Now why is this? Why is tent living undignified? Well firstly we understand that tents are not the prettiest of things. Tents are not the prettiest of dwellings. And I think we all recognise this by the way that we see how our society has a real strong focus on looking at marvellous houses rather than looking at marvellous tents. I don't watch a lot of free-to-air TV, but I do see advertisements that come on time to time about different shows that are on TV, and there does seem to be quite a fascination in Australia with looking at different houses, looking at marvellous mansions and going in and, and people renovating houses and making them look even better. But I've never seen anyone advertise a TV show that goes around looking at marvellous tents. Imagine a show like that, where the person leading the show would say, look at the canvas on this tent. Isn't it marvellous? Isn't it wonderful? Look at the poles, the ropes on this. I think they're sturdy. Look at the tent pegs that they've used here. Look at the colours of them. Isn't this wonderful, these tents that these people are living in? Sometimes he may say, look, this tent is a fine old tent. Yes, it needs a bit of love and tender care. It could be restored in a wonderful way. And it would shine through again that heritage there. And maybe we should actually list this tent as a heritage tent that should never be knocked down. It should be preserved. It doesn't happen. Why? Because we understand that tents are not the prettiest of dwellings. They're not things that we admire. And I think then 
When it says here in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and tented amongst us, it is to help us to reflect on the indignity it was for Jesus to take on a human body. We often get this sense that, oh, yes, it's just God, of course, he would take on human flesh, but it was undignified for him to do so when we consider how the human body is not the prettiest either. When you consider that the human body... Not all of them are as pretty as others. I mean, in one sense, yes, the human body is wonderful. I studied human biology at university and I, I came to really admire how the body functions, the human heart, how it just keeps on beating and supplying the body with all the nutrients that it needs. And even down to the cellular level, how each cell is like a little factory in itself. The human body is wonderful. But when we go back to the macroscopic level, when we start to look at the human body in a, on, a, on, a, on a much larger scale, we'd recognise that there are different imperfections about the human body. Some are prettier than others. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that is completely happy with their body. Even the models who are held up as the epitome of prettiness in our society. Apparently they Photoshop a lot of the images these days anyway. They take away and they modify. Every freckle is diminished in some way or they apply so much makeup. Even the models don't consider their body to be perfectly pretty. And as we get older, I'm finding that the imperfections start to grow or they start to grow less on the top of your head that the human body is not the prettiest and as it gets older, it starts to move in the other direction as well. It keeps going in that direction. And we have to remember then that God himself came and lived in an undignified human tent that wasn't particularly pretty. And even the Bible says that about Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, where it speaks so particularly of Christ, the Messiah, what does it say about him? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. When you see pictures of Jesus, he's always the one that sort of stands out and there's this glow about him. But it's not true. They're just an artist's impression of people who know something about Jesus and make him stand out in the crowd. The Bible says that if you saw Jesus walking around, he didn't look any much different from anybody else. He had nothing in his appearance that you should desire him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And so it was a great indignity to God to come and take on a human body with all the imperfections of a human body. But why else are tents undignified? Well, tents are weak and temporary structures as well. They're not the prettiest of structures and they're not the strongest of structures. Tents are easily damaged. Wear and tear is not kind to tents. It's not kind to buildings either, but buildings can withstand it a lot better. It just takes one great storm to whip a tent into destruction, whereas a storm coming to a strong, sturdy house doesn't have the same effect. And so when you go camping, one of the most unpleasant things is if it keeps raining. If it rains one day and rains two days, rains three days, and after the fourth day, even if you plan to stay away for 14 days, you come home with your tail between your legs because rain is not pleasant when you're tenting. And we recognise this with the human body as well. It's a very fragile structure that you live in. The human body is very weak. It gets hungry very quickly. It gets thirsty even faster. It gets tired. It gets cold, living in a tent. 
gets hot, depending on what the weather's like outside, gets sick, it knows what it is to feel sorrow, to feel pain, to cry. And all these things help us to remember that due to their weaknesses, tents don't last either. They're never meant to be permanent structures, and our bodies are not meant to be permanent structures either. The human body is not built to last. It dies all too quickly. For some people, it dies very quickly. Infants are born and they die within days, within hours of birth. And then we've been reminded this week, as we've said farewell to a dear sister in Christ, with the funeral, that our tents, our bodies, are not made to last. And so the human body and tents have a lot in common. And I think it's the word of God is really wanting us to understand this as we look at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us to emphasize that it was really undignified for Jesus, God, to come and dwell in a human body with all its frailties. And not only that, we see in this verse the indignity. We see the words that come after the tenting idea there in verse 4 about where God pitched his tent. What does it say in verse 14? The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, amongst us, which also reflects the indignity of God living in a human body in this world. Why is that? Well, God came and lived in a human body amongst sinful people. Now, if you go camping, it'd be all right, I suspect, as much as I don't like camping, I would be okay with going in a tent if it was pitched in the backyard of Buckingham Palace. Imagine that. You're out in the backyard, and if I got an invite from the Queen to a, 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 pal- a, a, a palace, uh, would she, she have the gardens, uh, opens the gardens up, a garden lunch, you go there, and maybe there's tents there, and maybe you can stay the night, and you've got the soldiers there with the big fluffy black hats on to answer every beck and call to provide great security, and if it pours rain, well, you can just go into the palace. It'd be very nice to live in a tent if you had all those privileges around it. And so in one sense, it would, if Jesus came and took on human flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we were a lovely people, we were just treated everyone really nicely, and this was a lovely world to live in, you might think, oh, it's not that undignified for God to come and dwell in this world. But when we reflect upon our own lives and the lives of the people that we see in the scriptures, we realize that God came and dwelt amongst sinners who hurt one another, who sin against each other repeatedly. Jesus came and lived amongst people who did sin against him, who did hurt him. We see, as we examine the rest of the pages of Scripture and even John's Gospel itself, we see how they treated Jesus Christ abominably, how they hurt him and gave him the worst, one of the worst deaths known to man, one of the most torturous, painful deaths that humanity has come up with. That was given to Jesus Christ because he came and dwelt among us. And we all have that in our heart. We're all capable of doing that to Jesus Christ as well. And so it was completely humiliating for Jesus as God himself to come and tent among us. The indignity of being in a human body and then the indignity of of dwelling amongst sinners. So why would God do that? Why would God come and tent in this world? 
Well, the Bible actually tells us. And 1 John verse 10 speaks of why God would do this. Well, I should say verse 12. Verse 12 of chapter 1 there. Verse 12, it says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Why did Jesus come and tent in this world? Why would God come and tent in this world? It's amazing to try and consider. Even the Muslims, they really struggle with this. I've spoken to Muslims before, and this is one of the big stumbling blocks for them when they try and examine Christianity. Allah himself come and live in a human body and die a human death? We just can't get that. No way. That is completely undignified. Now, why would God do that? Why would the scriptures tell us that that is true in contrast to the Quran? Because this is the way that people become, sinners become, children of God. See, part of the reason why the human body is an undignified tent is because of sin. The weakness you feel in your tent, in your body, is because of God's judgment for sin. The death you face is because of God's judgment for sin. The troubles you face in the next world are because of your sin. But God came and tented in a human body so that he could pay for your sins, so that he could go to the cross and pay a fully human death for your sins so that the wrath of God would be spent upon him rather than you, and so you could become one of his children. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. And instead of receiving wrath from God for your sin, you receive grace and the text actually tells us that. Chapter 1 of John says in verse verse 16, From the fullness of his grace, that's God's grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Another translation of that where it says all received one blessing after another says grace upon grace. It's like waves at the beach. When one lot of uh, waves come in, another one is right behind it. And that is how it is if you're a child of God. That God shows grace, and then grace, and then grace, and then grace, and it just keeps on coming. The waves never cease. And one of the waves of grace that is given to those who are his children is a tent upgrade for eternity. Because of Christmas, because of Jesus, the word taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us, your heavenly Father will give you a resurrection tent. And that tent, that glorious resurrection body, is indeed glorious. It's no longer there with all its imperfections. It is a glorious body. It is strong instead of weak. It is immortal instead of mortal. It is a tent upgrade from God himself. And you don't just get a tent upgrade. You get a new place to pitch it in. Where is that? Heaven itself. Paradise. You get a new resurrection body and you get to live in it in paradise, which is far better than Buckingham Palace. Imagine pitching your tent where God himself dwells, where there's no more pain, there's no more crying, there's no more suffering. Your body is immune to such things and they don't exist in paradise. And so this Christmas, do you understand what it means that God became flesh and dwelt amongst sinners 
And have you then believed in Christ, believed in his name and become a child of God? I ask that question because I know it's a reality that not everyone accepts Jesus Christ. Not everyone believes what is proclaimed in the scriptures about that first Christmas. And even this text reminds us of that. Verse 10 says, verse 10 of John chapter 1, He, that is Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. There were people who rejected Jesus. And some of those people were people who should have known better. People who claimed to worship the living God, the creator. He came to his Jewish race, the one, the chosen people, the people that he looked after for millennia. And they rejected him. And there are people here today in this world who claim to worship the true God, the creator of the world. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, oh, no, 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 they won't receive him. They won't receive one who became flesh and dwelt amongst us because that's undignified for God to do. And so they reject him. So I ask you this morning, are you rejecting Jesus Christ? Have you believed in his name or are you still in a state of unbelief? And if that is you, do you realise what you are doing? If you don't become a child of God through Jesus Christ, your tent, your body will never be upgraded. You will not be granted a body that will be glorious, that will shine like the sun. You will not be given a tent that is immune to weakness, to sickness, to pain, to suffering. Do you realise that you'll be pitching your tent, what tent you have, in hell for eternity, not in paradise? If you don't like living here, bumping up against other sinners and the pain that they inflict upon you, then you're not going to enjoy hell for eternity. The sorrows of this world, the pains of this world, are just a taste of God's judgment against sin. Just a taste of what is to come in the next life is far worse than anything you can experience in this world. And I tremble to think that some people in this room may one day know a pain that far outweighs anything I've ever experienced in this world. So I encourage you, don't follow those who rejected Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Trust in Christ and become one of his children. And if you are a Christian, you've accepted Jesus Christ, you've believed upon his name, then I've got three instructions for you this morning, three things that you can take away from the fact that the word became flesh and tented amongst us. Firstly, continue to marvel that your God tented in this world. Never lose sight of the fact that it is marvellous condescension of God to come and live in a human body, to be that babe in a manger is the marvellous humility of God displayed for us to see. If you don't regularly wonder at the incarnation, God taking flesh upon him, can you be a Christian? If it's just passe to you eventually, can you be a Christian? The Apostle Paul didn't lose sight of the humility of God in becoming human. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, 
about Jesus Christ. He says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Now, how did God make himself nothing? Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Apostle Paul knew the humility that God had displayed in becoming man. Never lose sight of that fact if you claim to be a Christian. Secondly, let the marvellous humility of God displayed in the incarnation lead you to humble yourself this Christmas. When you consider how condescending it was for God to come and dwell amongst us for your sake, how is there anything in this world that is beneath you to do for that Lord who would come and dwell amongst us? So maybe this Christmas you're meant to forget about your Christmas and what it is for you to have a happy Christmas and actually reach out to someone who may make your Christmas a little uncomfortable. Ask someone over for a meal who you know is lonely or Maybe talk to that offensive relative that no one else wants to talk to at the gathering. He's always there and always says rude things to everybody. He's never happy or content. But consider what it was for God to come and dwell amongst rude, offensive people and to talk to them. Even his friends said rude and offensive things to him. The people, the chosen race, treated him abominably. So why don't you go over and talk to that person? who's rude and offensive. When someone asks you to help with the Christmas washing up, and if the gathering's quite large, it could be quite immense, humble yourself as God humbled himself and came and served you. So you go and serve others this Christmas. Maybe get down to the level of the granddaughter who wants someone to play with her and her new toy, but nobody has time because they're busy doing other things. But consider what God has done in coming from heaven itself and dwelling amongst humanity and spending time with people. So you go down and spend time with that small child who no one else has time for. And when someone asks you, why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? And you feel a tone and there's an edge in their question that seems like they think it is uh, a terrible option that you've chosen to be a Christian. And you think that they're going to attack you if you talk about Jesus Christ. Maybe that's the time where you swallow your pride, you have some humility as Jesus was humble enough to speak to people who had an edge to their questions. And you speak about Jesus Christ, no matter what may be slung at you as a result. The first thing to do is to continue to marvel at the tenting of Christ amongst us. Second is to show humility yourself as God has shown humility in tenting amongst us. And then thirdly, never cease to look forward to your eternal tent pitched in heaven itself. Christmas we remember with gifts, lots of giving. And that is to remind us of the gifts of God to us, the gift of Jesus Christ. But what the gift of Jesus Christ actually results in is that that tent upgrade that we have in heaven. Half the joy of Christmas, I think, is the anticipation of the gifts. 
I see this with my own children. They're really eager to know what they're getting for Christmas. And Jill, my wife, and I disagree based on our family traditions that we've grown up with as to when presents should be put under the tree, when they should be wrapped and put under the tree. So Jill believes that we shouldn't put children's presents under the tree until Christmas Eve. Whereas I believe that part of the fun is spending a month picking up those presents, feeling them all over, shaking them, and even potentially playing with them if you can. I still get reminded by my sisters of how my parents terribly, in their opinion, my sister's opinion, let me ride a skateboard where the top was wrapped but the wheels weren't around the living room for about a month before Christmas Day because I knew I was getting a skateboard for Christmas and I was playing with it long before Christmas Day arrived. It's the anticipation of the gifts that is half the fun. And you're getting a gift from God, a resurrection body, an eternal home in heaven itself. God has given you a wonderful Christmas present to look forward to. That is a result of Christmas. And so if you're a child here and you've already received some of your presents and you're still anticipating some presents that may come this afternoon, I want to encourage you to remember the greatest present that is yet to come. That is the resurrection body in heaven where you get to see Jesus himself. And so I encourage you, believe in Jesus, even when you're young. Trust in Jesus, believe in his name, adults too, and enjoy the anticipation of the resurrection body that is the result of that first Christmas. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we come before you and praise you as a God whose love extends to becoming flesh, to living in a human body with all its frailties, and then dwelling among us, among sinners. And you did it so we could become your children. Oh Lord, forgive us for not marvelling at the incarnation as we should. But we thank you for guaranteeing us resurrection bodies, eternal tents in heaven if we trust in Christ. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe more in his name, more and more, and to rejoice in the heavenly hope that we share. And Lord, we ask if anyone here has never believed in Jesus Christ, who's never believed in his name, who's never received Christ, oh Lord, grant them faith today, this Christmas. Grant them faith in your Son, now and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.